This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. The new Super Beats Heart Shoes Advanced is now supercharged with CoQ10. Support your healthy CoQ10 levels and blood pressure with two chews a day. Visit RadioBeatsBeets.com and save 15% with promo code DEAL. The God of Mischief is back and better than ever. Loki. 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 Wow. Great to see you again. Critics agree. Loki Season 2 is marvelous. Great. And it's finally here. How much do you know? Let's assume I don't know much. A mind-bending adventure. Spectacularly cinematic. I've been waiting for a moment like this. It surpasses all expectations. A little over the top, don't you think? I thought it was spot on. Loki Season 2. Now streaming only on Disney+. You are listening to Absent Minded, brought to you by HabsEyesOnThePrize.com. As the National Hockey League continues its playoff run for the 2019-2020 season, across the Atlantic, European leagues are gearing up for the start of the 2020-2021 season. I'm Andrew Zadronowski, and this is Absent Minded. Hi, everybody. This is Andrew Zadarnovsky for Absent Minded, a podcast brought to you by Habs Eyes on the Prize. Uh, today, we have a special guest all the way from Europe, Mr. Shimon Schemberg. A bit about him. Uh, he was the director of communications for the International Ice Hockey Federation from 2001 to 2013. He was one of the founding fathers of the European Champions Hockey League, where he was communications director and chief operating officer. And currently, he's the managing director of the Alliance of European Hockey Clubs. The reason I brought him on is that I think uh, a lot of hockey fans are interested in the European leagues and how those that area of the world has handled their return to play. As we know, Europe is starting their 2021 season very soon. And also, uh, Shimon is a Montreal Canadiens fan, so I'm sure he was excited at the opportunity to join this podcast to talk about one of his favorite teams. Shimon, how are you? I'm fine. Thank you for having me on, Andrew. Oh, Thank you very much. Very much my pleasure. I think we've had some fun interactions on Twitter and I realized, you know what, I think we should uh, talk a bit about Europe to a wider audience to see, just so that people can learn how things are handled overseas. Sure. Yeah. Now, first of all, how have you been? How have you uh, personally uh, lived through this pandemic? Well, um, uh, in Sweden, uh, there is an expression, uh, they say, hemester. Hemester as opposed to semester. Semester is when you have a real vacation. Hemester starts with the word ho- hem, which is home. So this is a combination of the words home and vacation. So um, this was really a home vacation. Uh, we didn't travel anywhere. We stayed in, in Sweden in the vicinity of Gothenburg, uh, of course, uh, due to the uh, pandemic. So, uh, but, you know. Uh, I we didn't mind it. it mm-hmm. It's it's a great city. It's a great 
uh, Western Sweden is a great um, uh, region, so yeah, you have to take it for what it is. Absolutely, and I think we have we have a similar word here in English called staycation. So it's not a vacation; oh, okay. it's a staycation. So same okay. concept. It's um, the same concept. Exactly. Now, you know, we we've exchanged a lot of messages on Twitter about the Montreal Canadiens. You obviously have a great knowledge into their history. What is your what is your link to this uh, to the club? Well, it started very early. It started well early. <laughs> Depends on how old you are. Uh, you know, I, I started to follow the Canadians uh, around 1970-71 when I was a kid, and it started with, uh, you know, all kids were collecting hockey hockey cards, right? This is what you call them, right? Hockey cards. Yes. So, um, and in around 1971, uh, the NHL grew in popularity in Europe. So, not only did you you know, buy Swedish hockey cards or cards of Swedish hockey players, but they started to sell NHL cards. And I remember I was fascinated with my first hockey card, which was uh, uh, Frank Mahavlich in, in, a, in a Canadian's jersey. But the funny thing is that I, I was intrigued by this logo, the C&H thing, but I, I, I didn't have a clue what team it was because C&H for a 11 year old kid in, in, in Sweden doesn't say so much. So I was convinced that the CH, CNH was Chicago because this, this was the closest I could get to the CNH. So in the beginning, I liked Frank Mahavlich and also Ken Dryden, but, but I was sure that they played for Chicago. So only later I realized that, oh, the CNH, CNH is not Chicago at all, it's the Montreal Canadiens. So I had to make a choice between staying with, lo with the logo or becoming a Chicago fan, and I decided to stay with the logo. Makes sense, absolutely. The visual, <laughs> the visual trigger is what uh, really made you a fan of the team. What did you uh, did you watch the playoffs this year, and what did you think of the team? Uh, yes, I watched most of the games, although some uh, some um, starting times were extremely European unfriendly. Uh, but you know, I have a long-standing history of following the team uh, even from uh, during the times when you didn't have you know television and and those opportunities i stayed in the middle of the night and listened to american forces network from munich that was our best source of information so yes i did stay up and uh, yeah of course the win against pittsburgh was um, was a surprise it was a nice surprise but then uh, all the things which I'm not excited about, about the team showed very well in the uh, series against Philadelphia. And uh, despite two decent games, we really didn't have any chance there. So, uh, you know, I I'm not overly optimistic. Yes, uh, there is progress with uh, Nick Suzuki. Yes, there is some progress with uh, Jesperi Kotkaniemi. But when I see other teams like Boston, uh, uh, Dallas, uh, even New York Islanders, I see, uh, and Tampa, I see, I see what they want. I, I see a certain game plan. I, I see uh, a certain style, and all those things I'm missing uh, with the Canadians. When I when I when I watch them, I'm not sure are they slow, are they fast. Is it an offensive team? Is it a defensive team? 
what what is the character? What what does stand out? And 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 I have big difficulties finding answers to those questions. And uh, I think when, when I, I have a radio segment on Sundays on TSN 690, and one of the things I brought up for the Montreal Canadiens is that they have a lot of determination. They probably have a good system, but they're just missing the skill level. They have the skill level missing to either execute or overcome, let's say, the Philadelphia trap where Philadelphia just boxed them out and, and was able to uh, control the play and, and stop the play at the neutral zone. Do you think it's 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 a question of one or two pieces for Montreal that they need to acquire, or do you think there are larger, more more uh, philosophical issues going on with the club? To begin with, Andrew, I, I, I totally agree with you. At the end, it's always a question of skill. And, you know, I'm always looking at three things when I watch a team. How do they break out of their own zone? Mm-hmm. How do they enter the... Um, uh, offensive zone, and how do they string passes together? And none of those three things impressed on me. I, I didn't see lots of nice breakouts. I didn't see many passes being strung together, and I didn't see many controlled zone entries. Uh, I saw many, uh, you know, dumps and and, and dump without chase. Uh, uh, yeah, that summarizes what you said. The, the skill level is not uh, what, what, what you would want to see from a team by the name of the Montreal Canadiens, you know. For me, it's skill, it's speed, uh, you know, fire wagon hockey, headmanning the park. I know that the days of 60s and 70s will never return because it's so much difficult to win today. But I always have high expectations uh, on the Montreal Canadiens, and I don't think that anyone who is somehow associated with the team should have less expectations. To answer your second question, I, I don't think, you know, I don't think it's a matter of one or two players, uh, and this is something that I hesitate to 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 bring up because I think that the uh, challenges with this team, or rather with this club, are much deeper than that. Fair enough. And and we'll leave it at that. I think you're right. And that's a good summary and a good point to move on. Now, um, we I brought you on to talk about European hockey. Maybe let's start off discussing what is this alliance of European hockey clubs that you're the managing director of? How would you summarize its overall purpose? Uh, I summarize uh, like I always do when I meet someone from North America, because this is the easiest way to summarize it. Uh, we do for the European clubs, what the NHLPA is doing for the players. So we look after the interests of uh, European clubs on the international, on the European level. And yeah, as I said, this is what the NHLPA is doing with their players, looking after their interests and trying to uh, to uh, um, you know increase their bargaining power and represent them. And uh, and this is what we are doing with the European clubs, uh, because the challenge with the European clubs and all European sports is that clubs have no uh, pan-European representation uh, vis-a-vis their uh, respective uh, international federations. And uh, the European hockey clubs were really the last sport to wake up, if you will, if I can use this expression, because soccer or football clubs in Europe 
realize the necess necessity of having such an alliance uh, 15 years ago. And, uh, and uh, now their alliance called ECA, European Club Association, is, is probably the most powerful uh, football organization there is. UEFA and FIFA cannot do anything without having the uh, blessing of, of ECA. And the same case is in handball and basketball. And our hockey has, uh, you know, we started in 2016 to found this uh, uh, organization to look after the interests of professional hockey clubs in Europe. So uh, in terms of um, the interest you'd be looking, so you'd be, you'd be dealing with the leagues, making sure that the leagues are treating their teams correctly, that they're distributing any profits correctly. And so it's not at a player level, but at a club management level that you represent them in, in front of the league and in front of um, what, sponsors or just making general? No, uh, no, not the leagues. And this is good that you brought it up, Andrew, because we, uh, whatever the, if we take Sweden as an example, okay, it can be any country, Czech Republic, Finland, Sweden, whatever. Uh, when their clubs deal with their national league, this is a national matter. We don't deal with national matters. What we do is to try to represent the clubs on an international level. So the most discussions we have on behalf of our clubs right now is with the International Ice Hockey Federation. This is the big thing. And just to, to explain as, as quickly as possible, the big thing is that the player uh, that the clubs take all the risks with the players. Okay, they recruit them when they are kids. Uh, they develop the players, and it takes approximately ten thousand hours to develop a, a, a player uh, until he he has all the skill level. Uh, and ten ten thousand hours is between ten fifteen years. And once the players are developed, uh, they pay him salaries. Okay, so and once you have gone through this extremely, you know, challenging process of a developing a player, then this player is taken to uh, various tournaments like the World Championship, the World Juniors, the Olympics, and those tournaments are heavily commercialized, which is very good, extremely good. I mean, th those those tournaments should be. Uh, profitable. But the problem here is that none of the profits, uh, none of the revenue goes back to the clubs that provide the most important commodity, the players. And this is a business model that that doesn't work. And to a certain extent, Andrew, you can compare it with the approach that the NHL has with the Olympics. They are saying, hey, we have the players, we are giving them to the Olympics, and what do we have in return? You can discuss whether they are right or not. This is a story for another day, but I'm simply talking about the principle. The clubs have done so much to develop a player, and so they feel that, that they should have a say in international matters and a fair share of the pie. Okay, and that's that's you. You explained that perfectly. Now I absolutely get it. It's true. And so you also, I guess, the the final piece of the puzzle: international tournaments. But also, uh, when a player leaves a country, leaves their club to go to the NHL, for instance, there's also probably the the transfer agreement that clubs want to see some sort of return on their investment, something that comes back their way. And that comes between, I guess, the NHL and the, and that particular league's transfer agreement. But are you also involved in those negotiations for what a transfer agreement is? Uh, you know, right now, the uh, the dealings between the NHL and the various countries 
is right now between the NHL and the leagues and the national federations of those countries. Now, uh, to give you a, a, a short history background, this is an improvement over how things were, let's say, five, six, seven, eight years ago when the NHL negotiated with the International Ice Hockey Federation about this deal. And the International Ice Hockey Federation is like two or three steps away from the clubs. And the clubs were saying, look, we don't need an agent here. We want to discuss directly with the NHL. So the IHF said, fine, we don't need to be your agent anymore. The NHL is free to deal with the country separately or vice versa, the country separately are uh, allowed to deal with the NHL, and this is what they are doing. So uh, the NHL discusses with Sweden, the NHL discusses with Finland, the NHL discusses with Czech Republic and so on. But at the end of the day, uh, the deal that they are getting is the same deal. So it's not like a Czech deal or the Swedish deal or the Finnish deal or the German deal. All the national, all the uh, nations are getting the same standard NHL player transfer agreement. And is it basically the NHL is presenting a take it or leave it type option? Is, is, is there really a two-way negotiation here? <clears throat> this is a very good uh, question, Andrew. And, um, you know, everything is about leverage. And this is the most the difficult thing for the European side when they sit and discuss here, what is our leverage? And the lack of leverage comes from the fact that, one, the NHL has superior financial muscles, Two, it's a league where everybody who has NHL ambitions and NHL skill wants to play because of the because they can fulfill their dream and also after a couple of years can be financially independent. And as opposed to the old times of the Soviet Union, most European countries, or I would say all European countries today, uh, are, are democratic countries, which means that as soon as a player a player's um, a contract has expired, he can do whatever he wants with his life. And most aspiring uh, hockey young players, young hockey players in the world, their dream is to play in the National Hockey League. So with this, uh, there is not so much uh, leverage. And of course, the NHL, they know very well about this. So basically, yes, it is a take it or leave it deal because uh, just an example, Andrew, a couple of years ago, the Swedish club said, no, we are not signing the deal anymore. So when the deal expired, they said, no, we are not signing it because we are not happy with the deal and we want to keep our players. And that was around 2008. And at that time, I was in, at the International Ice Hockey Federation and worked for them. But of course, I kept uh, uh, close relations to the Swedish clubs and I spoke to some of the general managers. Look, I understand that you're not happy with the deal. But uh, but three hundred thousand dollars for a player, if you're not happy with that, I have full uh, respect for that. But after all, three hundred thousand dollars is more than uh, zero, because you really don't have any leverage here. Because when the player's um, uh, uh, contract expires, he will leave anyway, mm -hmm. and you will get no compensation if you're not part of the deal. Not only that. Every player who has an agent, and now, of course, every player has an agent, uh, 
no agent would allow a European or advise uh, advise a European player to, let's say, have a three uh, straight three year contract. So if a player in Europe signs a three year contract, it's always according to the one plus one plus one formula, which means that after each season, he has an option to leave if he gets an NHL uh, contract. Uh, and this is exactly what happened to the Swedish clubs in 2000. I think they were off the deal for two or three years. As soon as a Swedish player wanted to leave, he left with the difference that his Swedish club didn't receive any compensation. Mm-hmm. And is, is, do you think the $300,000 is, is, let's say, fair, ma- fair market value? Or would a fair market value model have different compensation for different players like a first line center versus a a goalie versus a a bottom six defenseman should there be different should there be fair fair market compensation for players or do you think a a single flat sum is sufficient to cover their development costs Uh, no of course it's not that i mean you know let me let me answer this way i do understand that to a certain degree, you cannot compare hockey with international football or soccer, as you say, in North America. But let's say an Elias Pettersson or Rasmus Dalin or any very talented European player is on the football market. And he's playing in Sweden and he's courted by Real Madrid or Manchester United or Bayern Munich or Barcelona. Do you think that that price for a, such a talent would be 300,000 euros? Uh, of course not. Again, you cannot compare with football because football has totally different numbers. But, uh, you know, the, the, the market price for such players would be uh, much, much higher. Uh, on the other hand, it's very difficult to talk about a marketplace where we don't have a market. You know, if we would have a market in, in, in hockey, just like we have in football, again, if, if you have an extremely talented uh, a football player coming out of Norway, Sweden or Denmark, he can choose between the English league, the French league, the Italian league, the German league. And this, of course, uh, influences... The increases the market, increases the price. In, in, in hockey, we don't have the market because every aspiring hockey player from Europe wants to go to the same league. You don't have an 18-year-old or 19-year-old or 20-year-old player dreaming about playing in the KHL. To the KHL you go when your NHL train has, has, has uh, uh, left, no, the left the station. Left the station, <laughs> yeah. So... This situation in hockey, where you have one dominant league, uh, influences the whole situation with the market. No, that makes sense. No, that, that, that actually, you explained that very well. So that, I hope I, everyone listening kind of understands where, uh, where the European clubs uh, suffer in terms of players going to NHL, but also that the players do have the ambitions to play the NHL. So leagues better you know, take what they can get from the NHL and just be happy with it. Um, Moving on to the next topic, we are uh, seeing the start of the 2021 seasons across Europe, slowly but surely. I think the KHL is the first uh, with a September 2nd start. Um, In in your dealings with all the clubs, uh, Shimon, um, have you 
have you what kind of conversations have you had with them over the summer over this whole pandemic was there concern whether a return to hockey was possible was there any teams that financially must return to play and don't have a choice and 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 do you, do you know any particular differences of how leagues have handled the return to play during this this pandemic it's a loaded question and i'll let you answer it in whatever direction you want to go okay okay yeah it is a loaded question uh, to begin with there are two organizations in europe uh, in europe right now that look after the interests of professional uh, hockey in europe one is ours, the Alliance of European Hockey Clubs. We have clubs as members. And then you have a second uh, organization whose name is Hockey Europe. They represent the leagues. So you have a club organization and a league organization. And the same system you have in, in European soccer as well. A club organization and a league organization. So those matters related to Corona and the pandemic and return to play has been uh, a matter for Hockey Europe. But of course, we have very close relations with Hockey Europe. We talk to them uh, on, on a regular basis. Uh, and the difficulty in Europe is that every country has different uh, preconditions, both regarding the uh, pandemic situation. Uh, you know, every country has their uh, health authorities and uh, basically every European country has a difference in 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 the spread of of, of the virus. Uh, so, for example, Sweden, where I live, is is extremely hard hit. Uh, we have almost six thousand casualties, and we have much much more than our Nordic neighbors, uh, Denmark, uh, Finland, uh, uh, Norway. They are not even close to 1,000. So this tells you something about the differences in, in how hard each country has been hit uh, by the pandemic. And this, of course, determines the national authorities' view on the return to play, because it's not the clubs and the leagues that determine that. It's the national health authorities who say, well, we have a, a, a maximum of 50 people for uh, for public gatherings. Other countries can have 500. Uh, other countries can have 1,000. So every, uh, every uh, country is different. Now to the second part, which is more a hockey part, which you asked me about, Andrew, uh, we also have a huge discrepancy in, in financial preconditions. So, for example, the Swedish league, again, as an example, they can be said that they are very well off because they have a very lucrative uh, TV and marketing deal. So, uh, and I think uh, proportionally, this is the best TV deal any hockey league in the world has. Uh, just as a comparison, before every season, an average Swedish league team know that they can pay half or more than half of their uh, player uh, salaries with the TV money. And this is an incredible luxury. Mm -hmm. uh, other countries like, uh, you know, the Finnish league or the German league, the, the Swiss league uh, or the Austrian league, they're not even close to that. So from that perspective, uh, the Swedish clubs uh, can survive more or longer 
uh, by playing games without attendance. While other leagues, like the German League, the Austrian League, the Czech League, they are extremely dependent uh, dependent uh, on on having uh, people in the seats. Mm, and that so th those those two things just give you an uh, overview, Andrew, how difficult uh, or different uh, the situation is uh, in, uh, if you compare with the uh, with the different European countries. You ca you simply cannot refer to Europe as one country. Uh, me being Polish, I don't think I'd ever do that. But if that, <laughs> that, if that came across that way, uh, I didn't ask my question correctly. But your explanation no, no. really um, kind of explains why the Swedish league hasn't really announced any sort of delays to their schedule. They're, they're essentially starting on time uh, towards the third week of September. Um, and I don't think there's been any any changes to that. Now, I know they're, they're considering delaying to October 1st, because I, from what I understand in Sweden on October 1st, there's new health regulations that are coming in place in terms of attendance. In the, in That's the correct, Andrew. You are very well updated. There was a decision uh, one week ago uh, on Friday uh, where the Swedish government said that under certain, under certain circumstances, they may go away from this uh, uh, limit, which is right now, uh, which is uh, uh, 50 uh, for 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 um, uh, what you call a general public gatherings mm -hmm. uh, as of 1st October. So immediately the Swedish League is thinking, yes, should we start on September 19 or should we postpone our games to October 1st, where we at least can have a hope of playing in front of 25% or 50% of capacity. And those discussions are ongoing uh, right now. But yes, you're correct, Andrew, that the Swedish league is most comfortable out of the European leagues uh, by starting without attendance because so much of their annual revenue uh, is not dependent on audience because it comes from the uh, broadcasters. And, and, and compare and contrast that to Germany, which is starting in, in mid-November, and uh, England, Great Britain, which is starting in beginning of December, two leagues that are probably very dependent on, on attendance and the ability to, to, to uh, finance their operations through ticket sales. Correct, fully correct, Andrew. Those, uh, those are examples of two leagues, the German and the British League, which are very, very uh, much gated-driven, correct. And this is why they start in November, uh, and December, respectively, yes. And and for those interested where I'm getting my stats from, uh, Shimon's organization, the European Hockey Club Alliance, has a Twitter page, and on that Twitter page, they update league start times on a regular basis. So that's where I'm pulling my information from. I'll put a link in the article for this if anyone's interested in seeing the dates. Um, the NHL did the bubble model for to complete their season, and now they're discussing about potentially doing a bubble model for the 2021 season as well, which is frightening, but that's kind of the reality they operate under. Have any European leagues ever considered operating in a bubble environment or are they all comfortable um, with just regular home and away games? Uh, <clears throat> until now, Andrew, I haven't heard or seen any European league uh, considering this model. Um, I don't know, but I think that this would be extremely difficult to do in Europe. Uh, you know, one reason is that European clubs 
as a, in general, do not control their arenas like NHL clubs do. So, for example, I guess that the Leafs are totally in control of the Scotiabank Arena, while the Edmonton Oilers are totally in control of their arena, uh, while in most arenas in, 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 in Europe are owned by municipalities. And uh, they would say, oh, no, we are not closing this for hockey. We need to have concerts. We need to have boxing. We need to have cycling races. We need to have circus. So I, I think it would be uh, quite difficult to do that. And one thing we didn't mention, uh, Andrew, and this maybe has to more to do with the previous uh, question, but also this, that, you know, everybody knows that the KHL uh, is a league with more than Russian teams. You know, they have a Finnish uh, team, they have uh, teams in Latvia, they have teams in Kazakhstan, uh, although the KHL is not part of our organization because they are totally apart, they don't want to be part of anything. But uh, one league that we have very close relations with because we have clubs there is the Austrian League. Uh, and the Austrian League has, of course, teams from Austria, but they also have teams from Slovakia, Hungary and Italy. So this is a perfect example of a, of a league that not only can care about the Austrian health regulations, they need to uh, keep track on regulations uh, from the Slovak government, Hungarian government and uh, Italian government. And then you have all the boarding crossings and so on. And, and this makes uh, life very challenging. I can imagine. And, and amazingly, they haven't really delayed the start of their season all that much. It looks, according to your table here, a one week delay for the start of their season. So they somehow managed to organize themselves across international borders with minimal delay, which is probably to their credit. That, that's correct. Uh, but I know from sources that they are right now in negotiations with their uh, uh, health authorities to see if their uh, uh, return to play program will be fully accepted. So, you know, everything which is on the chart is correct, but it's correct right now. And many of those things which are on the chart is according to the principle of uh, best case scenario or wishful thinking. So uh, those things can change. And my guess is that several things will change. But uh, th this chart that you refer to is the only you know, source which gives you the update how the situation is right now. And we've had some coronavirus outbreaks on teams in Czech Republic, in Slovakia, obviously in Russia. Um, it seems to me that in general, leagues are willing to go ahead with play despite outbreaks. There seems to be, um, how do I put this more gently, less concern about outbreaks in European clubs than there would be in the NHL, for example, or North America. It, 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 why, why is that? Is that is that a... Uh, and need to play like we need to play in order to survive mentality or or, or basically is the, is the virus maybe slightly downplayed in Europe and not uh, not seen as as deadly as it is in North America. It's I guess it's a it's a cultural comparison really at this point. Yeah, well, a, again here, Andrew, I wouldn't uh, generalize to the extent where I would say there is one uh, culture. I think that the health authorities in Czech Republic uh, are vastly different from the health authorities in Sweden or Finland. Uh, I, I don't know if I would agree with that, what you said initially here. I, I think that there is a huge concern about any positive tests or, or outbreaks uh, 
the question is only how will they deal with this? Uh, so I think that they are quite wary of the situation and 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 really uh, concerned. Do you know what kind of measures some arenas have taken uh, to to protect the players? Because it seems to me it's unavoidable at some point that they're all going to be in the same locker room. They're all going to be on the ice together. Um, do the players have to take tests when they first arrive? Do they have to declare tests? Do you know what kind of testing protocols some of the European leagues have put in place? Uh, you know, uh, this is also country to country. Of course, uh, right now, as we speak, most European clubs uh, go through uh, testing. Um, and, and they do it uh, uh, qu uh, quite frequently. Uh, when it comes to, you know, measures, I, I think that this will be quite uh, universal, uh, uh, you know, hygienic uh, measures uh, for players in locker rooms, uh, how they are sanitized, and, and also all the measures when it comes to allowing fans into the arena. Uh, you know, fever screening, um, no standing room. I know that this is never an, an issue in North American arenas because you haven't had standing room for 100 years. But in, in Europe, in Europe, standing room is a, is a huge thing and uh, no standing room will be allowed. Uh, and also what is different from North America is that in Europe, we have a tradition of traveling fans, you know, especially in, in, in small countries like Switzerland, where there's always a, a, a huge group of fans from one city following their team uh, to another city. Um, uh, and, and being in this away standing room sector, just like in old uh, British uh, football arenas. But this is also uh, something which will not be allowed. Uh, traveling fans, as long as this pandemic is going on and we don't have a vaccine, uh, will not happen. And, you know, every, every ticket will be registered um, individually, so you can trace a ticket to a person uh, and also, uh, when there is an outbreak, uh, you must know who you were who you were sitting next to, so you can always try to track uh, uh, the contamination if there is an an outbreak. Uh, so there will be many uh, measures uh, taken uh, for all the clubs in in different all the different leagues, both regarding to. Uh, teams in the arenas, in the locker rooms, and also uh, fans in the stands. Is there any country that you're concerned with in terms of how they plan on controlling the virus? Uh, I wouldn't say so. Uh, you know, th there is one league where the leadership from the beginning wasn't very concerned about this, but this league and their clubs are not part of our organization. And I was referring to the Belarus League, where uh, uh, Mr. Lukashenko some months ago said, while interviewed, when interviewed after one of his uh, hockey practices, he said, look around in this hockey arena, uh, uh, can you see any 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 um, any viruses? Do you see any COVID nineteen? I don't see anything. Uh, the best place to be is a cold hockey arena, 
And if you would, if you want to have an additional measure of of insurance, take take a shot of vodka. I remember that he says we, we yeah. the hot hot springs and a shot of vodka, and that's all you need to cure COVID. Yeah. So maybe this is an answer to your question. On the other hand, as I said, uh, Belarus is a little bit outside uh, of the system, so uh, we, we take note of this but uh, they are not part of the alliance. Their clubs are not part of the alliance and their league is not part of Europe. But uh, other than that, you know, most, I would say every country is part of the European Union. And, you know, and there is a, although all countries are different, there is a certain uh, common standard, joint standard regarding uh, uh, measures when it comes to things like that, if you are part of the European Union. So I don't think that uh, any country uh, sticks out here. Of course, Switzerland is known for not being part of the European Union, but you know, Switzerland is a country which is known to be extremely well organized. So we are not worried for for, for Switzerland at all. I've seen that we, like there's been a lot of reports of breakouts in the KHL. So the world's second biggest hockey league, according to some. Uh, I don't want to insult your Swedish league at all, but I think KHL is roughly number two or three. Um, they have seemed to have a lot of outbreaks on their teams, entire entire uh, preseason games being canceled, tournaments being canceled. There was the the Sochi tournament, which happened in uh, in early August, which uh, had teams pull out before it even started. Last minute replacements seemed a little bit chaotic. It, it seems to me like the KHL is is just gonna. In, in potentially in typical Russian fashion, just be headstrong and proceed forward no matter what. Um, I, if of any team, I think of any or of any league, I think there's that's the league that would concern me the most in terms of of, of, of outbreaks. And also, um, I wonder if that if there's any concern from players from North America signing in these European leagues. Have you have you heard of any uh, North American players hesitating to come over to Europe uh, because of the the pandemic? No, I really haven't, Andrew. Uh, I think to the contrary, I think that with the insecurity there uh, there is in the, in the American Hockey League and the and the East Coast Hockey League, I think that many North American players are really looking uh, for jobs in in, uh, in Europe, and um, I think that they trust the the uh, recommendations from the health authorities here. And, uh, you know, first and foremost, they are professional hockey players. They need to have jobs. And uh, from what I understand, uh, they are quite eager to, to uh, yeah, to, to, to sign those contracts. And I haven't heard uh, about any uh, such concerns, no. Okay, perfect. Shimon, listen, we've, uh, we've run out of time here. I don't want to take up any more of your time. We have a nice 45-minute segment here. I really appreciate your time here on Hapsit Minded. It was a great conversation and we learned a lot about the European hockey market and the European hockey organizations. Um, I wish you a great 2021 season while we still struggle to finish our 2019-20 season here in North America. Um, we hope for the best for the Montreal Canadiens. I hope for the best uh, across Europe and all the teams. I wish the Alliance of European Hockey Clubs great success going forward and great growth. And um, and thank you very much for your time. Thank you very much, Andrew. Thank you for having me on. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. 
So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.